Welcome to the Curious Climber podcast. In this episode, I'm talking to US-based climber Nina Williams. And this is a really great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Nina is not only really articulate, she's also very open, which meant we were able to have some very interesting discussions around a bunch of different things. We start by talking about a rock and ice article that Nina published a few years ago, where she very bravely talks about an experience she had as a young climber of cheating in some competitions. So we talk about how that felt at the time, what the drivers were there, but also how it felt to publish an article and talk about it. We go on to discuss some of the highball climbs that she's done. We talk about her process when it comes to danger and analysing risk, as well as the idea of professional responsibility. We also talk about first female ascents, her thoughts around that. And then we go on to finish with a bit of a discussion around her recent decision to go back to school, how it feels to study again, and how that's affected her identity with her climbing and her sense of productivity in that space. So there's really a lot of interesting stuff in this podcast. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Nina. We were just talking about how we haven't seen each other since 2015, so it's actually quite a long time. So what have you been up to since then? 2015, uh, let's see, I, you know, have been climbing consistently throughout then, of course, but I recently started school. Um, That's probably like the biggest lifestyle change that's happened to me in the past year. But um, yeah, I've uh, moved to, so I lived in Boulder for a while and then I moved to Salt Lake City for about nine months and then I moved back to Boulder. You know, left a a long-term relationship and have been in a new relationship, which is now another long-term relationship (laughs) for the past like uh, three and a half years, which has been awesome. Um, And I've switched sponsors and I've just like, feel like I've gone through a lot of big changes, which has been great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of change then actually in the last few years. I want to talk to you about what you're doing now, but I feel like that should come later. So I'm going to like rewind to begin with, but we are going to come back to what you're doing now. Um, (laughs) But can we give people a bit of background um, just to give a bit of context? Because obviously we might have quite a lot of like UK listeners and like, how did you find climbing? What were your big influences and the kind of your progression of interest when you got into climbing? Um, Yeah. So I found the climbing itself, uh, I started out in New Hampshire and um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm never sure whether to say if I'm like an indoor climber or if I started indoors or if I started outdoors because the wall that I was on was man-made, but it was an outdoor wall. Right. Um, okay. <laughs> one of the local ski hills. So um, I just went to town on it. I had such a great time, um, more so than any of the other sports I had dabbled in like soccer or swimming or that kind of stuff. Uh, so I went back home and I immediately joined a climbing team. Um, so that was when I was 12. And then I was on the team for a year before I started competing. Um, so I competed from age 13 to, oh gosh, like 25 or so. Um, doing okay, both. Solidly in that time, you didn't take a break from competitions. No, not really. Well, I mean, there is a a blip in there between ages 13 to say like 14 or 15, where I hit a bit of a rough patch. But um, afterwards, no, it was pretty consistent. 
Sure. Okay. And I guess by the rough patch you're talking about, I I remember when you posted a Rock and Ice article um, a while back. When did you actually post the article? You know the one I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was in 2016. Um, I wrote about my experience as a youth climber and how um, during my first year of competition, I put myself under a lot of pressure and I just created this um, narrative in my head that blinded me to other people, blinded me to reality, really. Um, So I ended up cheating in a few competitions Mm -hmm. and uh, eventually got caught and, you know, was punished and rightfully so, but went through a lot of like realizations during that time that were really difficult as a young person, but looking back um, really shaped the climber that I am today. Yeah. Wow. That's like quite a big experience to have had quite young and quite an interesting one. I remember when I saw your article thinking that was really brave to publish because you didn't need to talk about it more publicly, right? You could have kind of swept it under the carpet and been like, I don't necessarily want to talk about that, but you saw it as something, I mean, I'm, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but I figured that you saw it as something that was worth talking about because you saw where it came from, like the pressure and the kind of, um, I'm guessing kind of looking for external validation and thought it was important to talk about. Yeah, I I really wanted to start talking about it because at the time I was um, coaching part-time at ABC Kids Climbing in Boulder. Mm-hmm. And I was starting to see that same attitude in some of the youth climbers where they were just so hard on themselves. And uh, a few of our team members, you know, I mean, you kind of know, you kind of tell when, when kids are cheating. <laughs> right, okay. So we had a few cases of those and I just thought, you know what, this is something that doesn't get talked about, um, you know, where even since then I've talked to different parents where they've, you know, had same, same issues with their own team members or kids. And they're like, you know, I thought so-and-so was such a good kid, but, and I always stop them and I'm like, they are good kids. Kids are good, Mm. period. But these external circumstances and situations are causing them to make choices that are not good ones. And so instead of, um, you know, of, of course the child should be uh, taken aside and, and, and punished appropriately in a way that makes them understand the consequences of their actions, but also not to be like, oh, so-and-so is a cheater to the core and they're a bad kid and that's that. Like <laughs> everyone sure. has redemption. No, exactly. And I think it's really important I remember actually, um, slight segue, but I remember my picking up a parenting book that belonged to my mom once when I was a kid and reading about how you had to separate the child from the behavior when you were parenting. So you could, rather than saying you're, you've been a bad girl, you'd be like, I don't know, struggling to think of an example, but like what you did was bad. So you kind of, you know, discuss the behavior in terms of whether or not it was appropriate or not, but rather than condemning the person. And I think that's kind of similar to what you're saying now that like, you've got to be able to separate it out and try and, I guess, like have compassion and understand where it's come from. Right, exactly. Because ultimately, or at least in my case, it was, you know, a huge cry for attention. And I just wanted people, um, I mean, I I wanted my coaches and my teammates and my parents to be proud of me, but really like I wanted to feel some sort of pride in myself, Mm -hmm. but I couldn't make out the difference between feeling proud of myself and having other people feel proud of me at the time. That was like the biggest realization that I made throughout that process. 
And that's quite young to kind of have that realization. So probably although it was a really hard lesson, it was a really good lesson to learn so young. Yeah. And honestly, I wouldn't even say that I, I learned it young because through while all of that was happening, it's not like I was having these conscious thoughts of like, oh, yes, you know, <laughs> external validation versus internal. And these were all thoughts that eventually came to me down the line. After all of the events happened, um, of course, I realized that climbing, you know, I, I still loved it completely and I wanted to stay within the sport. Uh, but I continued to deal with ego and pride issues throughout my competition career. Uh, and then once I started climbing more outdoors and figuring out, you know, what, why is it that I love to climb in the first place? Uh, what makes me happy about it? It was like this really slow process. Mm. Um, but once I started t actually talking about when I cheated to other people and, and thinking about it from, you know, this third person perspective, that's, those are when I really made those realizations. Um, the conscious realizations of like, oh, wow, like I I really <laughs> um, was just looking for this external validation instead of internal. Yeah, no, I can, I can see that. And how did it feel when you, so when you were older and you published that article, was that kind of nerve wracking? Um, yes, it was very nerve wracking uh, because I knew that I would be asked to speak about it. Mm -hmm. And this was about three years ago. And when it first came out, I would still, at that point, I had been able to speak about it without crying for the most part. Maybe mm. <laughs> a little tear would slip out. Um, but it was cathartic too, because every time I spoke about it, it became a little bit easier. Yeah. Um, so now, of course, I can speak about it freely uh, and not feel really any, any, any guilt or anything like that. But even if I, as I say that, of course, like it's something I'll always hold on to. So maybe that's not entirely true. Like it's still something I'm working through, but it's the whole process has been really beneficial overall. Yeah. 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 One of the things I wanted to ask you is whether you feel like there's still kind of a social or professional kind of hangover from that episode that you still kind of carry, or is it, or do you really feel like it's just in the past? No one thinks of, you know, do you feel like that's associated with you now? Or do you feel like okay, actually, it was really cathartic. I've spoken about it, kind of cleared the air on that. And now do you feel more like, okay, I can move on? Yeah, I, I feel like I can, I have been able to move on from it. But at the same time, I do feel like it's, it's become associated with me and become a part of me. Uh, but I think the most, it's not really an either or whether it's hanging over me professionally or what other people think. It's like, ultimately, it's my experience. I've owned it. And I feel really at peace with that and whatever anyone else wants to think they can think that of course they're they're free to their own opinions but i have drawn my own power from it and if other people think negatively because of that then it's like not my problem <laughs> absolutely and you can't control what other people think at the end of the day you can only like you say own your own decisions and your own voice and kind of move from that position i mean personally i thought when i read it that it was really brave and also really, really helpful to a younger generation of climbers that you were talking about it. And I imagine that that is the feeling that most people had about, about that, um, that article, that it was predominantly like a really a brave and, and good message. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> One thing I did want to ask you actually about with the article, I reread it the other day and something that stood out to me was that I remember when you said you were writing on your scorecard that you wrote in red ink and all the other ink was black and <laughs> I straight away was like, I wonder if on some level you wanted it to 
you know, you, it was a little bit of a cry for help, right? Mm-hmm. That you wanted yeah. someone to notice? Because, I mean, I pick up a I red think... pen. I <laughs> was <laughs> <laughs> like, why? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, I actually, my mom said the exact same thing as we were going, like when all of this was happening way back in the day, she made a really similar comment, basically, like, I mean, <laughs> if you really wanted to do this well, you would have picked up a black pen, but <laughs> it is, so it was super obvious. <laughs> you either just like maybe weren't talented in that department, or you really wanted to be found out, right? <laughs> yeah, <not just> sabotaging. <laughs> so yeah. <much. laughs> Um, so do you, do you find that you have to check yourself now with any of that stuff? You know, like, cause obviously since then you've obviously grown as a climber and you've developed, you've become quite well known and sponsorship and kind of fame, that kind of thing within the climbing world. Like, do you have a reflective process around where your motivation comes from in terms of what you decide to do? I'm kind of thinking with this in terms of like, you've done quite a lot of high balls recently. And, you know, with that kind of climbing where there's more risk involved, you've got to be really sure about where your motivations come from. And I'm wondering if that previous experience, even though it was a totally different kind of climbing, like the lessons you learned from that inform, like maybe you have a process around making sure, okay, I'm definitely doing this for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, definitely. Like I, I've always, like, I've always been drawn to, to highballs in that not like from an aesthetic point of view, they're just really beautiful. But even when I was a kid, uh, I remember climbing up into trees and I'm sure a lot of kids can relate to this, but I would climb higher and higher and I would get scared the higher I went, but I would always be holding on to like the base of the branches and telling myself, okay, well, you know, you're not falling yet. And maybe you can go a little bit higher. And then just being able to sit in that scared feeling, like just pause really high up in the tree and be like, ooh, <laughs> mm. I'm, I'm really, I'm out of my comfort zone and I'm in a semi-dangerous spot, but I'm also completely in control. And, you know, I'm not like flying through the air right now. And then I would, you know, slowly make my way down. And that feeling has always drawn me to high balls because it's the same thing. It's like I get up in a really high position, but, um, you know, I, I always top rope the climb beforehand. Mm. Um, because for me, like, you know, there's, there's different styles of how people approach high balls. There's the ground up, um, you know, it's sort of ethical style where people are like, Oh, you know, you can't work anything on a rope and you, it's just all on site. And like, that's, I think that's amazing and really, um, admirable, but it's just not what I seek in my highball experience. Like I want to know what I'm getting into so that I can achieve this flow state and, um, but still understand that I'm in like a dangerous position. So when I think about highballs for like, when I choose a highball, it's a really gut reaction. Like I usually see it and I, I, my first thought is like, oh my gosh, I want to climb that period. Um, and that process as of recently is something I'm still, it's, it's something I'm revisiting like pretty much right this second because, you know, I've been climbing high balls for a while. Um, and then I climbed Ambrosia in 2017. Yeah. Um, and that got a fair bit of attention, but you know, not like a crazy ton. And then, uh, I started working too big to flail, but mm-hmm. I was pretty quiet about it because, I I mean, I just didn't know if I would even ever try it without a rope. Um, It seemed really far away. But then once once I did do it 
and it got in real rock. And now I'm asking myself, it's like, well, I, I don't really want to do highballs now. It's not that I don't want to do highballs, but I don't want to do highballs because people think of me as a highball climber and they expect me to like go out and find the next big highball to climb. <laughs> yeah, because you can see how that could kind of like get out of control, couldn't it? Like if you feel that like, oh, now that's part of your identity as a climber, people expect it. You know, you could just end up doing things that are maybe not what you would have chosen if there weren't other people yeah. watching. Yeah, exactly. Like I, uh, and, and it, highball climbing is also just sort of silly. <laughs> and I say that with as much love as I can because I love highball climbing. But at the end of the day, it's like, uh, I don't know, there's really not too much more space I can I can grow into within that specific niche like for instance my my current project it's sort of a, a side project right now but um there's a 514 sport climb in St. George Utah called the present mm -hmm. and um it's three bolts it's probably like 30 feet tall or so um and it has been bouldered before so <laughs> I'm I went out there with uh, my friend Matt Siegel to to go work it just because I don't know it's like like this is a project where I'm kind of feeling like oh well I have maybe I should go out and do something that's sort of highball climbing but it's also I'm like bouldering a sport climb yeah okay <laughs> yeah time, like my my mind is like this is just I, this is just kind of it's just silly. Like I'm having fun doing it and it's a cool experience. It's like, Oh, do I warm up sport climbing or do I warm up bouldering? Like what mm -hmm. am I, am I sport climbing or bouldering? Like, I don't know what's going on. Um, and I've also, I've never climbed a 514 sport climb. Mm. Um, and I, a part of me doesn't want my first 514 sport climb to be a three bolt route. <laughs> so yeah, like, well, I'm just going to boulder it so that <laughs> I still have my, my 14 route you know, route climb out there. But yeah, so uh, long story short, I'm, I'm still questioning my own motives in this moment. Um, after real rock and, and after getting a lot more attention for being a highball climber, it's like, well, this thing that I'm doing, it's, it's still sort of dangerous, but it's, it's within my wheelhouse and I'm really just having fun with it. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, kind of seeing myself with tongue in cheek and <laughs> just seeing where it goes. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. And I mean, I've, I mean, we've climbed together a bit in the past and you know that like I've done a bit of um, highballing as well. So I kind of, I really get that feeling. I understand what it, how it feels to go high and how you can have a really amazing experience of feeling in control when yeah, and there is a I, bit of fear there. I, I actually have to say your video of careless torque was one of my first inspirations for doing highball climbing like back oh, in the day. Wow. One of my favorite videos to this day. It's so beautiful. Oh, cool. Well, you should come and do it. I want to. It looks amazing. I really want to come out and experience the grit. Yeah, you definitely should. It's a great one. And I, I mean, it's smaller than a lot of the stuff you've done now. So you probably, um, <laughs> probably find it a short work of it. But I wanted to ask, like, do you consider and like reflect on the potential consequences of things going wrong before you enter into, I mean, you must do right on, on some of the highballs. So like my, I guess, what I think of when I think of trying careless talk and I've done a few highballs in font as well and for me if things go wrong I've probably broken my legs okay but mm -hmm. 
on some of the things like I've seen your segment in Real Rock and like for example on Too Big to Flail. I mean, I I almost don't want to say it, but I don't think I think it would be pretty bad, right? If you fell off the top, <laughs> it would be it would be pretty bad. Um, I did think about it when I was up on rope. I would look down, and I I sort of whenever I'm working something that tall, I I go through. I sort of like mentally visualize not only what would happen or what could happen if I fell, but like actually falling. Like I'll, I'll pick a point. I'll like be at the top of the climb and I'll look down and I'll think, okay, if you just, if, if the rope just snapped right now, or if you were climbing and you just slipped, you know, where would you go and, and how would you deal with that? And my, my general rule with climbing and bouldering, uh, is always to look down first and foremost is to like pick a spot on the ground that you can aim for because then you can orient your body in space and sort of like plan a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And then the the second thing is just to try and relax as much as possible. So like when I fell off of evolution direct, um, I kind of accordioned into it. Mm -hmm. It's like your feet hit and then you kind of roll back and just let the impact go through your body instead of trying to resist it. Okay. Of course, it's still going to hurt. Um, but that's what I thought about with flail, um, and my other highballs. It's like, well, it's going to suck. You're probably going to break your legs, but if like, you can always still control yourself, even if you're falling. So if I fell off the top of too big to flail, it's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to pick this spot on the pad. I'm going to immediately look down, search for it and just try and, you know, uh, okay. brace, brace myself. Yeah. So you're still thinking at that point of like how the fall is going to feel. I don't know as someone watching, I've not been to that boulder, but as someone watching it in the film, I felt like at that point, at a certain point on the boulder before you were on top, you were effectively soloing rather than bouldering. For me, it, something about the height of that one, something mm -hmm. changed for me, but I don't know if that's a perspective, you know, with the, where the camera was or something. Um, but it suddenly felt like a different ball game for me and like maybe the, the top quarter of that boulder. Yeah, especially because for me, there's like one last hard move at the top. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's not hard physically, but it's just kind of insecure. But yeah, like I like it's it's undeniable that there's injury, imminent injury from falling uh, at that height. And then I also would consider, OK, who am I with? What would happen if I did, you know, if something really bad happened and I couldn't speak or walk or talk or any of that? Um the great thing about Bishop is that all the boulders are pretty close to the road. Yeah. And there's a great community in that area. So I, I knew that if worst case scenario, something happened, I, I would be able to like, my friends would get me out of there and that's yeah. putting responsibility on people outside of myself, which could be like an entirely different conversation <laughs> as far as uh, self-sufficiency and that kind of thing. But I probably wouldn't take those same risks if I, if I was, in a different country, say, or like, you know, yeah. out in a really remote area where there were no rescue options, like it would be um, a different process for sure. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's sometimes what we don't see in films that there is this whole process behind it. And it can almost seem reckless to someone that doesn't know. But presumably you've thought about all these things. And you've also had the co those conversations with the people that are going out there with you, like they know the deal, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you have conversations with your family? Like, I don't know, are your parents climbers? 
Uh, no, neither of my parents are climbers. They're very afraid of heights. Okay. Um, do you talk to them about the big things you're going to do or do you just tell them when it's done? <laughs> uh, I have a rule with my mom. Like we've actually discussed about it, discussed it. And she doesn't want to know what I'm doing until I've already done it. Okay. <laughs> and my dad, sort of the same thing. Uh, we haven't said it in, in so many words, but I think it's the same idea. And um, after I did uh, Ambrosia, my dad, or no, no, sorry, after I did um, Footprints in Bishop, which was like probably the first really big, you know, yeah. talk, my dad wrote me this really long email. When, whenever my dad's upset with me, he never calls me. He like writes me <laughs> long okay. Um, really essentially questioning my motives and being like, are you doing this for yourself? Or are you doing this for your sponsors? And um, he sort of set the groundwork uh, for specific questions that I would continue to ask myself for climbs. Like, am I, do my sponsors actually care about this? Do I actually want to do this climb? Um, you know, why am I doing it? Et cetera, et cetera. So it was really helpful. And we've had conversations since where he's, he's very supportive in that he knows that I go through the process and he knows that I'm as safe as I can be. That's amazing to have that, that level of support. It's interesting, actually, neither of my parents are climbers either. And I had a bad accident a couple of years ago, sport climbing, actually, and um, just a bad fall. And I remember telling, you know, like telling my dad, ringing him and being like, look, I'm OK, but this has happened. And it was really scary. And I'm out of hospital and I'm, I'm kind of fine. But all of this happened. And he was just amazing. He was just like, you know, from a non-climber's perspective, there was a lot of trust, basically. I explained everything that happened and he was like, you know, things go wrong sometimes. I'm really glad you're okay, but I trust that you you know what you're doing. You were responsible and things just kind of went wrong. And I remember thinking, wow, that must be so hard, not just as a parent, but as someone outside of the sport to be able to almost, well, to just go in without judgment, basically. It sounds like your your parents are similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, in the Real Rock film, it it's mentioned about James, your current partner, his kind of previous experience of having an accident soloing. And that was quite a strong, for me at least, part of the film that, you know, he's had, he had an accident soloing. I'm not sure how long ago it was. And now he's kind of supporting you through this journey. And I just thought that must be an interesting dynamic for you two for kind of, I wonder if that affects your kind of decision-making at all or whether it's something that you guys have presumably discussed. Um, I wouldn't say it affects my decision making now, but like, yeah, so James fell about a hundred feet in Joshua tree, um, soloing a five, nine called, I think it's the North overhang. Um, but he, so yeah, so he fell 70 feet and then hit a ledge and sat up like really dazed and very, very injured, but unaware. And then he fell off the ledge another 30 feet to the ground. Mm. Um, and that was that was about 20 years ago. So it was quite a long time and he's fully recovered, but he has a lot of metal in his body. And um, yeah, he's been through that whole experience. And he's the, the thing that I love most about James is that he doesn't project his experiences onto me. Right. And um, like when we first started dating and I was getting into high balls, it's not like he was like, oh, you know, I've I've been really badly injured and I, you should just be careful. Da, da, da. He was he just like, I already knew his story. And 
he was like, well, I, I understand why you're drawn to these climbs and, and you want to do this style of climbing. And if you're going to do it, then let's just be as safe about it as possible. So I actually learned from James a lot of the uh, technical aspects of like setting up a, a single line t top rope and mini tractioning and like going through all the moves and rehearsing. So James really encouraged me or it helps educate me on, on the best process of how to go about doing these climbs. Yeah. And I guess in some ways, you know, like as scary as it might be, if you have an idea of what the consequences or you know, the worst case scenario consequences are, if things do go wrong, that sharpens your focus and makes you go, I suppose in some one situation, it might make you go, I don't want to do this. But in another, it might be like, well, if I'm going to do this, then I'm going to make sure that I've got everything covered and really kind of, it, it brings to life that kind of worst case scenario so that maybe um, your process will change a little bit, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Um, you were saying earlier actually about, and I meant to ask this at the time, imagining the fall at different points when you were on the rope um, and kind of going through, okay, where would I pick as my landing and imagining what it might feel like in your body to be falling. And when you were saying that, I was thinking, wow, but when you go from the ground without the rope, do you have a hard time keeping those thought experiments out of your head because obviously when you're in the zone and you're climbing the last thing you want to be doing is like mentally full practice um, <laughs> do they creep in at all or is that just like totally you're able to separate the thoughts themselves don't really creep in because I I sort of envision them during the days when I'm on a rope and working it's almost like I get it out of my system and instead of thinking about the words like the thoughts themselves I really hone in on the on the feeling of like how it makes my body feel when I think about these scary falling scenarios mm. um so it's like this it's like this tensing wash that just comes over my body and everything freezes up and uh I get this like this feeling in my chest like and I've I've gotten this feeling before I envision it as this ball of light so the more I think about it, the bigger and brighter this light gets until it just overwhelms my ability to think or make any decisions. And so when I'm on a rope, I like, I allow myself to feel that. And then when I'm on the climb without a rope and I start to feel that same sensation because I've, I've been familiar with it, I know how to separate myself from that, I, from this, I call it like an observer position. Mm -hmm. It's like I'm able to observe myself outside of that feeling and say, okay, well, you felt this before and, you know, you know what will happen if you let it continue, but we don't, you know, we don't have to let that happen. <laughs> we can just yeah. allow it to, to simmer because it's never going to go away, that feeling of fear, but we don't have to let it get bigger and bigger because we, we being me, myself and I, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we know that uh, you have the physical capability to do this climb. So just keep doing what you know how to do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's really interesting that whole concept around observer position. Um, I guess that, that's like a whole nother interesting conversation as well. <laughs> Did you get much uh, feedback from the real rocks? Obviously you got, you know, quite a lot of exposure in that um, relatively recently. Um, it's been uh, surprisingly like very positive for the most part. And I say surprisingly because I was uh, hesitant about getting that story out there because, you know, it's, it's a dangerous activity. And the last thing I want is someone to see it who's on, who's inexperienced and be like, Oh, I'm going to go out and highball climb too. And then like hurt themselves or worse. 
Um, so there's definitely been some comments around that topic, but, uh, for the most part, I think everyone's been really kind and been like, Oh yeah, it's very inspiring. And (laughs) I've actually had people say, Oh, you know, it's like, it's inspiring, but it's not something I would ever do. Which I'm like, great. Yeah. (laughs) I hope it, I hope overall it inspires people to go out and do something that they want to do. Um, not necessarily highballing, but yeah, it's, it's been pretty good so far. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's kind of the reason I asked is because I remember also when, for example, Alex Honnold did that, the free solo film, I remember seeing a bunch of people saying, you know, okay, it's all well and good for you, but do you really want to inspire people to go and do dangerous things? Someone that's going to get hurt and all that kind of stuff. And it's this really kind of gray ethical area of, you know, you can't control what other people decide to go and do. But I suppose as an athlete in this kind of having a lot of platform and exposure, there's also an element of professional responsibility. Um, and I was wondering what your experience had, had been around that. Um, but it sounds like it's been pretty, pretty mostly positive. Yeah. And, and I've always been as open as possible about my process, about trying to be safe, about, you know, not doing things ground up and not doing things because they're dangerous or because I'm seeking, you know, a sense of adrenaline. Um, I, I always tell people, Hey, I do it because I like feeling safe and I like feeling in control, even though I'm in a situation that may not appear that way. Um, so at the end of the day, you know, everyone has their own responsibility to make decisions for themselves. And if I can talk about my experience while also emphasizing my process and, and how I try and make it as safe as possible, then I feel, uh, you know, that helps me go to sleep at night. Yeah, sure. And I think that was something actually that stood out from your film was that there was a lot of talk about process and you did make it clear that you had a specific method for making it feel safe, even though it was inherently dangerous. And it, it was clear that there was a lot to what you were doing. It wasn't just like, oh, Nina's just seen a big boulder and she's just going to go and willy-nilly <laughs> climb it without really thinking about it. Um, you know, it was very clear that this was a, a, a very well thought out process for you. And I think that gives people a sense of, you know, either that's some, not something they're going to go and do, or if it was something, then there's a lot of learning before you get to the point where you're, where you're doing really high stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, also most people would probably, if they did think, oh, willy nilly, I'm going to go and climb this high thing. They'd probably get like a few feet up and be like, oh, this is terrifying because I haven't <laughs> got a process around this and they'd get down, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So th- it's also kind of uh, some of the things you've done have been in terms of female climbing have been kind of relatively, you know, unknown territory for you. You've, you've gone and done first female ascents of, of quite a few things now is is the kind of FFA a thing for you or just not really I mean that <laughs> itself is kind of a big topic so I don't want to go like too deep into it but it did strike me when I was looking through like a lot of the stuff you've done that has been a, a theme yeah so and I'm glad you brought it up because it's a topic that I feel like it, it this topic goes through phases of getting discussed and then getting forgotten and then brought up again and I I've honestly really flip-flopped on the subject over the past few years, but it's, I think it's worth noting that when I, when I was growing up and on the climbing team, I was one of the only, I was like one of two girls on the team. Uh, and I didn't really have any immediate female role models to look at, look up to. I mean, Lisa Rands and, and, um, Lynn Hill were climbing of course, but nobody within my, <clears throat> excuse me, within my immediate community, um, were women, were strong women that I could uh, be inspired by. So when I was growing up, I 
drew a lot of my inspiration from my male teammates and coaches, which, you know, contributed to my cheating, um, episode, but, but also like, that's just how I grew up within climbing. And so today, when I think of what I'm inspired by, it's my immediate thought doesn't go to female accomplishments. I'm not like, oh, I want to find a female mentor or female climbers to like be inspired by. And so for a long time, I was like, well, first female ascents really shouldn't matter because, uh, you know, women shouldn't put themselves like to a second standard than men. And we're all people in the end, so we should just be inspired by whoever, regardless of gender. But that being said, uh, I've sort of changed away from that thought process because men and women are biologically different, like they're just different people. And so when we talk about equality in climbing, because the platform of climbing offers one of the most equal playing fields you could, you could really have in a sport. Like everyone's climbing on the same routes, trying the same grades. Women are climbing harder than men in some aspects of the sport. So you're like, okay, well, men and women must be equal in climbing. So we should hold them to equal standards. Um, But when we think about the word equal specifically, like equality should not equal, equality should not be sameness because men and women are not the same. It's not like women are less than or less equal to men because they are not the same. They are just different at the end of the day. And that difference is not good or bad. It just is. So on the subject of first female ascents, I'm wholeheartedly in support of first female ascents because women, like it's just a realm that, that women are breaking into. Not recently, like women have been breaking into this like the strong area of climbing for a long time but recognizing those first female ascents are important for other women to see and be inspired by just because you know i or other female climbers elite female climbers didn't have that same inspiration growing up doesn't mean that in today's new generation of climbers where there are a lot more female climbers looking for that inspiration i just think like highlighting first female ascents are important um, because it's something that we didn't have as much growing up Ultimately, like I am in support of first female ascents. Um, I do, I do think that women should not only limit themselves to inspiration from other women. Uh, you know, if that's what you want to do, then that's awesome. But um, there's like a whole world to explore uh, in climbing, and you know, people should just be inspired by whatever inspires them. And if that's first female ascents, then I fully support that. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to think about it, and I think there's a lot to be said for being inspired by something you can relate to. And I'm similar to you in a way because I grew up as one of a few or kind of one of the only female climbers in my kind of mini community of climbers that I grew up in. So I did look to guys for inspiration and I didn't have too much separation there. You know, I found it kind of easier, easy to be inspired by men, but I know that's not the case for all women. So just because that was my experience and by the sounds of it, kind of yours, it doesn't mean it's the same across the board. And well, like you say, yeah, we are physiologically different. Yeah, that's really interesting that you've kind of, because I find that I, I like your phrase, flip-flop a bit on the issue. And um, <laughs> it's nice to know I'm not the only one. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you were saying that you're studying at the moment. You've gone back to school. Um, does that mean climbing is slightly on the back burner or are you kind of managing them both at the same time? 
Um, I'm trying to manage them both. Uh, I've, I've said that I'm trying to balance them, but I've learned that at least for me, balance, I haven't figured out how to balance things. <laughs> it's, it's like a seesaw. Um, I'm either on one end of the seesaw or very smack on the other end. Um, <laughs> so at the beginning of the semester, I was like fully threw myself into school a hundred percent, um, and still have, have, you know, had it as priority this entire time. So climbing has been on the back burner a little bit and my performance is not exactly where I'm used to having it or where I would want it to be. But I also know that it's a temporary thing. And like, I know that I want to climb for the entire rest of my life. So this is like, it's good for me to focus on something other than climbing and to be okay with with not performing as, as high as I want to be, but, but knowing that I'll have time like later. Yeah. Yeah. And how long is your course and what are you studying? Um, so I'm studying, I'm finishing my undergrad, uh, for communication and leadership management. I, uh, graduated high school in 2008 and then I did a few semesters at university of Rhode Island, but, um, I was just like a really terrible student, just wasn't motivated, wasn't psyched, um, didn't know what I wanted to do. And so, I, and I also just told myself, you know, I'm, I'm not a classroom student. I'm not a good learner. So school isn't for me. Um, so I dropped out and I went climbing for a long time. And then a couple years ago, I, I just started feeling like I wanted something a little bit more. I think because I knew that I wanted to climb for the rest of my life, it's like, well, okay, I need something else to focus on other than climbing if that's sustainable. Cause otherwise I would just get burnt out. Yeah. So I enrolled in a year long coaching program the same one that Sonny McCandless, um, Honnold's girlfriend was in and it's, it's a life coaching program and I'm hesitant to use the phrase life coaching because I feel yeah. like there's a lot of weird hippie dippy stigma around it. Especially with um, British audience listening. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Let me coach your life. Let me tell you all about you. Um, but no, like the, the program was amazing in that it, you know, I, I gained a certification from it, which was really nice, but it allowed me to do a lot of self-development. And, um, it taught me that the goal of the coach is not to give any sort of advice. Um, the basic core is to ask as many questions of the client, um, to help the client figure out answers that they really already know inside themselves. Um, right, okay. whether it's like a plateau around relationships or career or money or just all this stuff, because everyone kind of gets stuck in their life at some point and, uh, it was just like a cool process to go through. So at the end of that program, I was like, Oh my gosh, I love coaching. Like I love helping other people specifically, but I wanted to learn more. I wanted to learn more about psychology and counseling and, and specifically communication, like how people speak to one another, how they are speaking to themselves and what that voice sounds like, because, you know, everyone has that little inner voice that, is either encouraging or more often it's like, Oh, you know, are you really good enough for this? <laughs> mm. Able to take this on? Maybe you should just sit this one out. You know, that, that type of, um, inner conversation is really fascinating to me. So, uh, and because I had told myself that that voice inside of me was like, you know, you're just really not smart enough for school and you're not that great of a student. So why bother with college? I was like, you know what, I'm going to prove myself wrong. Mm. <laughs> and I'm going to finish school because not only will I learn more about uh, a subject that's really fascinating to me, and I'll gain a higher education, but I'll just gain more experience, um, you know, through the coaching and, and through school itself and be able to bring that into the rest of my life. 
Yeah, that's cool that that life coaching almost went full circle and made you kind of question some of your own like inner thoughts and kind of assumptions that you'd made about yourself. Yep. Yeah, that's cool. Um, So you've got a couple more years of that. Yes. So I've got um, two more years at the most. Uh, If I take, you know, the the pace that I'm studying, like I'm a full-time student, um, but I'm probably taking summers off and stuff just for climbing. So I'll be done by fall 2021. Yeah. And then we'll see where it goes from there. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I read you did a post recently about productivity and self-worth. And I guess we kind of touched on it when we first started talking about your studying. Um, but I thought that was a really good post. and it, it kind of struck a chord with me at the moment because I'm in a bit of a downtime period from climbing, having to take a little break. And it was interesting. I was like, yeah, wow, we do just sometimes as climbers get really attached to like recent productivity. And it we don't always take time to take stock of like everything we've done in our lives whether it's climbing related or not and take you know draw our self-worth from this bigger picture it's often like oh but I haven't done anything recently and that can easily if we don't catch it make our confidence drop when really often we're just making different decisions or prioritizing different things um so yeah thanks for that post (laughs) I enjoyed I found (laughs) got some help from that yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, thanks for bringing that up because that's kind of the position where I'm at right now with school. I I just feel like I haven't really accomplished anything groundbreaking or like I'm pushing my limits right now. But then I'm like, you know what? I'm pushing my limits in other areas of life. And uh, it's just because it looks different than from a, what I'm used to doesn't mean I'm not progressing in some way or another. Um, so yeah, we just have to appreciate the work that we've already put into ourselves and use that to propel. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's kind of good to, you know, it's good to see what it feels like to not be, you know, if you're used to being like operating at a high level in a sport or in whatever you do, in some ways it's character building to go through a phase where you aren't at that top level because that's going to happen at some point to all of us with age anyway, right? So this is like, you could see it as like, okay, I'm going to have a little bit of a psychological experiment with not being where I'm used to be and see how comfortable or uncomfortable that is. And you know, it's always going to be a learning curve. Yeah, exactly. We're, just, we're really just preparing ourselves for old age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Slow decline and being okay with that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. Um, where can people find you on where like your social platforms and do you have a website and things like that? Um, I have a website. It's not really in operation. So let's maybe hold off on that. But I'm very much on Instagram at shenanigans, S-H-E-N-E-E-N-A-G-I-N-S. Um, and then, you know, if there's a little message button. If you, if anyone wants to send me a longer email, then um, they're welcome to do that as well. Cool. That's awesome. And before we go, one last question. What's the best most recent best book that you've read? Hmm. Be a good book recommendation, but it doesn't have to be all time recommendation, just a recent one. Honestly, because of, (laughs) because of school, I've been reading all of these like random school books and I've been a big fan of the New Yorker, uh, mostly because of the quality of, of the writing in that magazine. I guess I, I don't really have a specific book recommendation. Oh, actually, this is going to sound really weird. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I don't even know if this is uh, appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now, now I'm in. 
But, uh, okay, so I've been, so one of my classes, actually my favorite class of the semester, um, was a, a class on Nazi Germany. It was called Inside Okay. Um, and it was, it was so fascinating because it just drew a lot of parallels to the things that were going on in the thirties and forties. Um, and, and kind of how a lot of that is reflected in today's society. Um, but we, we read a really short book. It's essentially a really long essay called On Pain by Ernst Junger. And he was a fascist author. (laughs) Okay. um, But there's just some, some really interesting material within this long essay where, uh, you can, you can sort of see how, how, the notions of fascism like really develop um, and how they originate. But there's also some, some cool stuff in there from Nietzsche and how the the aspect of pain, how we can like separate ourselves from pain and, um, and just be able to manage it more. And again, because Junger is, is is a fascist author, he's speaking of it in terms of like people becoming these like cold machines and able to, like, uh, distance themselves from pain so that they can, you know, be these, yeah, these war machines basically. But in the con, I, I found it really interesting in the context of society today and also in the context of climbing, um, like speaking from it, from an, from an observer point of view and being able to like separate ourselves from our actual pain, I thought was kind of cool. Yeah. And there's so. some parallels there between <laughs> That's my were- book recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. That's fine. And there's some parallels there between what you were talking about with um, separating yourself from fear as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I can see how that would, it, it, there's a lot of parallels and, and interesting lessons to be learned from that, I think. Yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. Interesting. Um, awesome. Well, thank you so much for chatting to me. And I hope we will not be another five years before we get to chat again. I know, Mina, this was awesome. Thanks for uh, inviting me on. And um, I'm sure I will see you sometime in the near future. I really, really want to come and check out the English Grit. Yes, come and do Kelly's talk. Yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> <laughs>